Bibles this evening and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 9. We'll read tonight from verse number 19 down through the end of the chapter in verse number 27. We're looking at temperance tonight as we continue our series in understanding godliness. Paul writing says this in verse number 19, For though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews, I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law, as without the law being not without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might gain them that are without, or that phrase there, without the law, means not adherent to the law. They are people that are not Jews, they're not obedient to the law, nor were they supposed to be. Verse 22, to the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. In this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partaker thereof with you. Know you not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly so fight i not as one that beateth the air but i keep under my body and bring it into subjection lest that by any means when i have preached to others i myself should be a castaway let's open in a word of prayer this evening father in heaven we do thank you for the truth that is apparent in this passage paul here is not teaching us that we need to be christian chameleons what he's saying to us is that we need to be self-controlled. We need to know who it is that we're dealing with. We need to know how we deal with them. Help us, Lord, to understand godliness by understanding, understanding the spirit of temperance, the thinking and mindset that leads to the actions of, of discipline and self-control. Bless, I pray this evening as we look at this thought from this passage in Jesus' name. Amen. I was thinking, even while we were singing, in fact, they don't need the song anymore, so I tore it out. As we were singing it there uh, at the end of the prayer time, coming into this, we sang in verse number three. Uh, it says, do you fear the gathering clouds of sorrow? In fact, verse two says this, do the tears flow down your cheeks unbidden? The second phrase, have you sins that to men's eyes are hidden? The third stanza says, do you fear the gathering clouds of sorrow? Are you anxious what shall be tomorrow? And I thought even as we sung that song, it really does speak to what we're talking about tonight in the area of temperance. Temperance simply defined is this. It is the virtue of one who masters his or her desires and passions and appetites. How much in control of your life are you, we might ask tonight. If we are going to be godly, then God certainly is going to be the one leading the control element of our life, but we are going to be in control of that life. We're going to be living disciplined, 
to the Word of God. The great Edmund Burke, a political philosopher uh, from two centuries ago, said this, Men are qualified for civil liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains on their own appetites. Society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite be placed somewhere. And the less of it there is within, the more there is from without. It is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions forge their very fetters. Every time I look at self-control in the Word of God, either in my personal study or in a preaching of, of a message, I cannot help but remember the words of my school administrator, Gil Hansen, a godly saint whose wife recently, or probably three or four years ago, went on to be with the Lord. Mr. Hansen's probably now in his 90s. And he used to say to me when I was growing up in, in middle school and high school, big fella, he would always do this kind of same move, big fella, imposed discipline leads to self-discipline. Right. It was a mantra as a Naval Academy graduate in 25 years in the Navy and in 25 years in the administrator of that academy was drilled into him. Imposed discipline always leads to self-discipline. That's exactly what Edmund Burke was saying. Yeah. It's exactly what Paul is giving to us this evening in 1 Corinthians chapter number 9. Peter was very much like Paul. He was a man well aware of having to come to terms with mastering himself. Peter was a passionate man, and often the apostle was chided by his Savior, Jesus Christ. It seems that often in Christ's ministry to Peter as he walked this earth, his chief aim was in developing Peter and his temperament. So it's no surprise then that when we see those things that we're supposed to add to our faith, that temperance finds its way into that list. Self-control. Peter, by the time the Lord ascended into heaven, had learned self-control. But if you read the book of Acts, you will find that even after that, Peter stumbled. Right. Peter struggled. None of us will ever be able to say this side of heaven, I have achieved total self-control. It's a daily battle. It's a daily struggle. Paul lists temperance as a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter number 5 because self-control is a product of being spirit-controlled. I was one in my earlier years who had to work often on controlling my passions, my desires, and my appetites. So I can understand both of these men as they write in the New Testament how we are to be temperate in all things. That's what Paul says in verse number 25 here. He says, every man that striveth for the mastery or for that which God in his perfection would have for us is temperate in all things. Baker's Illustrated Bible says this, self-control involves the willingness to submit to the boundaries of nature, society, and family that God places in the world to bring about order and harmony in relationships. Why is it in our nation, the country, it seems, is falling apart? There's no self-control. Right. We find the mass shootings always are blamed on guns. But it's always, it always should be pointed back to individuals 
who do not exercise temperance, self-control. It doesn't matter what the color of the one that's committing the mass crime, they are exhibiting a lack of self-control. The self-restraint, Bakers goes on to say in their illustrated Bible, the self-restraint of an individual's thoughts, words, and actions reflects the ordered discipline of God's creation. Discipline of the self is essential to live a productive life in any community. So Paul, Paul builds for us a full explanation of temperance and what should be our example of temperance as well. We begin tonight in our notes with the necessary aspect of the arresting. What do I mean by that? Well, Paul tells us that we are going to have to bring our bodies into subjection. We're literally going to have to arrest ourselves in verse number 27. It's a poem I heard many, many, many years ago, and I've kept it in my notes. And every time I preach on temperance, I think it has been somewhere in the sermon because it's that important to me. Here's the poem, and it's wonderful. An enemy I had whose face I stoutly strove to know. For hard he dogged my steps unseen wherever I did go. My plans he balked, my aims he foiled, he blocked my onward way. When for some lofty goal I toiled, he grimly said to me, Nay. One night I seized him and held him fast. From him the veil I did draw. I looked upon his face at last, and lo, myself I saw. That's the idea of self-control. Who is it that is stopping us from going deep into sin that is against Almighty God? The answer is you and your will informed and bent by the word of God. Amen. Right. Paul defends his ministry here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 before addressing some of the other issues that were going on in this Corinthian church. But in this passage, we find in verses 1 through 6, if you look back in chapter 9, you'll find first that we must arrest our own indulgences. In verses 1 through 6, Paul writes and he says to us, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not ye my work in the Lord? If I be not an apostle unto others, yet doubtless I am unto you. For the seal of mine apostleship are ye in the Lord. Mine answer to them that do examine me is this. Have we not power to eat and to drink? Have we not power to lead about a sister, a wife, as well as other apostles, and as the brethren of the Lord, and Cephas? Or I only, and Barnabas, have not we power to forbear working? What Paul is addressing here is that this early church, this church at Corinth, did not agree with what he said or what he was doing. He had confronted them. And if you read the beginning of 1 Corinthians, he had confronted them very directly. He was dealing with their sin. And what Paul is saying to them is, look, I have demonstrated a whole lot of self-control. Now, self-control is not like humility. You're allowed to exert it, and you're allowed to say what you're exerting. My father used to do that a lot of times with me when I was really, really bad. I am holding myself back. I remember only once when I was a boy getting my spanking. My dad always had a wonderful system, and I follow it with my boys. I go in with a list. And my dad would sit down with me, and he would go through the list. And my dad is half smiling right now because there was one time when I was fifth or sixth grade, I looked at his list on his stenopad, and I said to him in the midst of his teaching, I said, you missed a point. 
It did not end well. Temperance left that room that day. But that was the only day I can tell you in all the years of my upbringing that my father did not come in under self-control, and my mother the same way, in disciplining me. I learned very quickly that day, don't talk that way unless you really want to pay the price. What Paul is addressing here is, I, with them, I have exercised towards you a whole lot of self-control. There are things that I should be able to say to you. I am holding myself back in saying to you. Am I allowed to lead around a sister? Of course. Am I allowed to lead around a wife? Of course. Am I allowed to lead around Peter, Cephas himself? Of course. Why? Because you are the Apostle Paul to whom the mystery of this dispensation has been given. And yet Paul is still kind and loving and gracious to them. What that tells us is sometimes when we lose control, it's just because we are feeding our own selfish indulgences. Paul says, I am free. I have the liberty to lead whom I choose, how I choose. That liberty has an implicit danger in it, and that is this, abuse. Abuse. Paul never abused his office. But the reality is that abuse is built into any leadership position. It's built into any person's life. You are autonomous. You are in charge of your own life. And so when you choose to sin against Almighty God, you cannot blame other people for it. You did not exercise self-control. The temperance that Paul demonstrated over and again with young, fragile, immature believers was for this purpose, to edify rather than tear down. Why is it that instead of indulging ourselves in every whim or every passion, it's because we are intent on building ourselves up in this most holy faith, but also because there's others that depend upon us and look to us in this faith. On the occasion we find Paul terse or blunt, we find it's always couched within great words of love and longing for whomever he's correcting. Paul had a right to be upset with how the Corinthians were treating him, yet he exercised temperance in dealing with them. What areas do we often indulge in our lives? It's Wednesday. You can answer. Oh, sorry. I just woke up. You were talking to me? <laughs> yes. What are areas that we indulge? Maybe don't give me like a specific one. Like, I indulge eating an entire case of ice cream today, Pastor. I'm sorry. I don't need to hear that, ladies. But, you know, but whatever it is that we indulge in, probably it's men that do that, just because our house never touches the ice cream. What are some things that we indulge in? What are some macro broad categories? Entertainment. Comfort. Food. I don't know who said that over there. <laughs> Must have been a man. What are the areas? Say again. Reading? You indulge in reading? Yeah. Well, you can indulge in reading, Nate. You can get to the point where anything in your life really can be overindulged. You can feed it too much. Here are two broad categories that I wrote down. Physical indulgences and emotional indulgences. Yeah. So, so many of the ones that we've said are within the physical realm. We call this generally gluttony. 
It may be about eating too much or playing too much or sleeping too much. It may be even that we work too much. That's possible. I just can't be there, Pastor. i got to work again. Okay. Can you ever be here? No, I've got to work again. Maybe you're indulging that work. You're not exercising self-control. Well, you only live once, Pastor. This is the job I've been given. Yeah, you only live once. Why aren't you at church more often? See, we can exercise self-control. By the way, church can become an indulgence. I know people that are so hooked on church, and please understand and hear it correctly tonight, that they only do church stuff to the detriment of their own family. There's no exercise of self-control. Every time, and I understand that we all come from different backgrounds, but there's a reason on some of these holiday weekends, I take the Sunday nights off. It's not just because I'm lazy and don't want to get together with y'all. I enjoy being around each and every one of you. I enjoy worshiping together. But I also understand it's okay for us to have a Sunday night where you're with your family. It's okay. We don't do it every Sunday night, but it's okay. We have folks that go to the excess. The point is we have no moderation to our lifestyle is the idea of a physical indulgence. We are excessive in all that we do. There's many different drink companies that have tapped into this idea. The idea probably perhaps is best found in Red Bull. Our house, it gives you wings, they said. We don't ever, we haven't drunk it yet. I think it was Micah the other day, scared one of my boys, said, don't drink it at the end of men's prayer breakfast. My boys came home, we're never going to drink it. <laughs> it might give you wings. The point is, you got to keep drinking the five-hour energies because I just got to keep going. Your body was built to rest at certain points. Exercise control and go to bed. Well, but that show, it just was really good. They had to watch nine episodes in a row. Go to bed. Exercise some self-control. Speaking of exercise, I remember back in my days when I worked for the government, I'd go down to the gym at lunchtime, and there were guys, I don't know what work they did. They literally were in the gym from the time I came into the office around 6 a.m., and they were in the gym uh, at headquarters until probably 3 o'clock. And I figured, I hoped, they were some kind of black ops team because otherwise they did no other work at that place. All they did was exercise. We have people, there are people that exercise too much. Now there's some of us that exercise not at all, but there's some that exercise too much. The point in the physical realm is when that thing takes over our, our life, when it becomes the only activity that we live for, it is exerting control and we are no longer. There are indulgences. The other I put on here is emotional indulgences. We find this is the extremes as in the extremes as well. Fear or phobos in the word of God is what it is. The word phobia we get from that. Eros or lust type of love. Excitement, compulsions, things like that. Uh, we've met or been around people that will tell you, oh, I'm just neurotic on that. And the truth is you may be, but it's all boiling down to a matter of temperance or self-control. It's emotional. By the way, you know that you're at, this is the last time I, I used this example, it was probably four years ago, and I felt heat for it for several, several, several months, if not a year. 
So don't get mad at me if you're out there. But you realize that the games on your phone, that those app developers, including Facebook and others, Apple is no different, Google's no different, they actually hire neuroscientists and psychologists and psychiatrists to get you hooked on that so that you cannot put it down. It drives your dopamine levels up so that you can't stop swiping. <laughs> you just gotta have the next Wordle. I don't even know if that's how Wordle goes. <laughs> and you're all being very smart tonight. You're not going, oh no, Patrick, it goes like this. <laughs> gotcha, almost gotcha. These companies know that our human race struggles with saying no to compulsive behavior. So they build it into their games, their apps, and the design of their programs. Literally, to never release you from their control. Letter B I put on here, invitations. We must arrest the enticement, the invitation that comes our way. Now, we may not want it as an invitation, but it's an invitation nonetheless. It's like Potiphar's wife coming after Joseph. He didn't want it, but it happened. How did he say no to the invitation? He exercised self-control and ran away. The second danger to avoid for us to arrest day by day are the enticements that come our way to sin. Proverbs 1 and verse 10, my son, if sinners entice thee, what? Consent thou not. Exercise a little self-control. Well, it's, it's just a sin that so easily besets me. Yes, there are sins that easily beset us, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't engage a little temperance. If we want to understand what it's like to be godly and know godly living, then we will exercise control over the enticing invitations that come our way. James says that we are to flee youthful lusts. Paul, in verse 7 and following here in uh, 1 Corinthians 9, says this, Who goeth the warfare any time at his own charges? Who planted the vineyard and eateth not the fruit thereof? Or who feedeth the flock and eateth not the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen? Or saith he altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt this, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope and and, excuse me, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partakers of this hope. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, it is a great thing. Is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? In other words, if you're giving money to other people, why wouldn't you pay the pastor? We're going to get to the point on this. You all do a wonderful job of that here. That's not the point of the preaching. Keep going in verse 12 if you're there. Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple? And they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar. Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But I have used none of these things. He exercised temperance when it came to this matter. Neither have I written these things that it should be, done, be so done unto me. For it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glory void. For though, I, for though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. 
For necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. For if I do this thing willingly, I have a reward. What he means by willingly there is if I do it excitedly because I'm being paid for it. He goes on and he says, I have a reward. But if against my will a dispensation of the gospel is committed unto me, what is my reward then? Verily, that when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. He is saying to them, I am exercising self-control, temperance in this matter that I very much could come to you and lay blame at your feet. For Paul, in his case, because they were not compensating him. They were not uh, ministering to his financial needs or the burden that he was, being, that he was bearing when he was amongst them preaching. He is saying, rather, don't give me money because then I'm going to be glorified by the amount of money you give to me. Rather, let me glory in God. I'm going to exercise self-control because you've not shown the kindness to me. Paul's exhibition of self-control was in that he did not fall into the enticing trap of self-pity that happens to a lot of us often. They just don't appreciate me. Exercise some self-control and realize your service is to God. Yeah. He also didn't fall into the enticing invitation or trap of self-aggrandizement. Look who I am! This is really one of the only passages that he comes the closest to saying to them, Do you understand what I try to do for you? This is the closest he comes. He did not fall prey to victimhood. Even though the Corinthians were not willing to recognize or compensate him for his tireless ministry on their behalf. These are the dangers that are necessarily arrested in our life. Secondly and quickly, there are some things that we must adopt. If we're going to exercise self-control, there are some things that we should take on. Some things that we adopt. There are two elements to adopt. Adopting, I should say, a spirit of self-control. Letter A, it is identification. I should begin adopting the ability to identify where I lose control. Do you know, moms, where your kids push your buttons? We're going to find out this summer with kids sitting in here all week, all, all night, right? I love it. I love, by the way, having the kids in here. It's not, a, it's not a problem to me at all. If I can operate in my house with three crazies. Jessica does a good job keeping them under control. But if I can operate in my house with three crazies, we can operate in a church service. It's a wonderful thing. But you've got to identify where you lose control. It, it, back to the idea of controlling our physical indulgences. If we do things to excess, then we know that it sets us in a particular mood emotionally, and we begin to have problems. Well, I'm not exercising the right kind of self-control. Well, I, I did it in that moment, Pastor. Yes, but there was 11 moments that led up to that one moment. But Paul is suggesting to us in this passage, specifically beginning in verse 19 and moving forward, is that we need to begin to identify the things that we need to do to exhibit self-control. To the Jews, he was a Jew. To those that obeyed the law, he obeyed the law. To those that did not even know the law, who were without the law, he didn't worry about the law of Moses, but he did still exercise the law of Christ, he tells us in verse 21. Paul was beginning to identify the things that he needed to adopt in his life to show true temperance to the people that he came in contact with. 
So a couple things I put in your notes there. We need to have control over what I think. Your mind is where it all begins. Get control of a person's thoughts and you'll control them. One of the most challenging things to do, yet one of the most necessary for spiritual maturity and godliness, is to control our mind. 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 5 says, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God, or godliness, that we're studying tonight. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. That phrase, bringing into captivity, means I'm going to control it. Number two, we see, I put under your notes there, control over the way I feel. I need to identify how I gain control over my feelings. This flies in the face of our culture. We're told today that this is just something you can't control. And so you'll see the screeching and howling abortionists outside the Supreme Court. By the way, I'm going to be real careful here. It also probably led some conservatives to problems back on January 6th. We've lost control, and when you lose control, not everybody in each of those crowds has lost control, but when you lose control, especially in a mass gathering like that, it's very easy to have an adverse effect on everyone. Proverbs 25 and verse 28, by the way, is a wonderful verse to note. It says this, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Can I tell you something? At the time of that writing, when Solomon was penning it, if you were a city of means and any status in the world, and you didn't have a wall, you were conquered like that. You didn't stand a chance. The wall was your protection. And he's saying, look, if you don't exercise self-discipline, self-control, temperance over your own spirit, your own mind, the way you feel about things, you're like a city that's broken down without walls. The third area I put is control over what I say. The Bible tells us over 150 times about the tongue, the danger of it, the success and sweetness in it. But it tells us a whole lot about controlling our tongue. Ephesians chapters four, uh, chapter 4 verses 25 and 29 challenges us on the use of our words. Here's what Paul says to the Ephesians. Wherefore, put away lying. Speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. In verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying or building up, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. The fourth area of control that we need to identify is to control how we behave. That's what we find here in chapter 9 and verse 27 of 1 Corinthians. We would do well to take heed to this passage and the personal testimony and wisdom in it. The picture of progressives and liberals howling makes us giggle. But I can tell you that I've seen a lot of church services that have devolved because of a lack of self-control. And I have no doubt many on the internet giggle at us. Diligence in identifying where we need to adopt new thinking leads us to letter B, intensity. Intensity. In verse number 24 here of 1 Corinthians 9, the Apostle Paul says that we don't only need to adopt the process of identifying where our weaknesses are and where we need to shore up, but he also says, hey, look, you need to adopt some intensity to this. You've got to be disciplined in this. You've got to be serious. You are not going to casually take over your life. 
Your flesh is going to fight you tooth and nail. Paul uses the phrase in verse 27 to keep under his body. In verse 24, he says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? Imagine that. I've often for a long time, and, and even as a pastor today, I believe I know what this verse is saying, but there's so many things that it could mean. Here's what I believe it means. You are running this race, and at the end of this life, you're going to be rewarded at the Bema seat. And either the rewards are going to be burned up because your flesh won a lot of the battles, or you're going to receive gold, silver, and precious stones because your spiritual man won a lot of battles. But it says here, there's only one that's going to receive a prize. Which one is it? The answer is through self-control, hopefully your spiritual man. So run that you may, what? Obtain that prize that is yours. The phrase in verse 27, to keep under, means to guard. The word in verse number 27 that he brings it into subjection has the idea of enslaving it. He enslaves his own flesh. It teaches us what we need to do with our passions. Paul was pretty serious about temperance. He worked to enslave his passions to Christ's passions rather than forego Christ's passions for his own lusts, which is what we often do. Most Christians, in fact, do not take much time to contemplate what needs to be incarcerated, brought into subjection, and they don't understand the intensity that it takes to overcome those things. Well, I prayed this morning for 35 seconds before I jumped in the car with my cup of coffee. That should be enough for God. It might be enough in the moment for God to hear from you. I'm sure he's pleased about that, but it's not going to be enough for you to overcome yourself. We find then third and finally the achievement. There is the arresting, there is the adopting, and then there is the achievement. There's great joy and satisfaction that comes to a person who masters their passions for Christ's glory. In verse number 25 of our passage here, he says that they that obtain, they do it, the physical realm, those Greek Olympiads as they would run them, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. But he says at the end of verse number 25, we do it for an incorruptible crown. So we find the achievement first is incorruptibility. That's a long word, I realize, but... That's the big word for your day. I want incorruptibility. Okay, well, then you're going to have to control yourself. Because you are filled with corruption. Filled with the Spirit of God, then you have hope and success. By the way, this is one of the five crowns that a believer may win, we read in the New Testament. And it is a joy to know that, that, that mastery of our passions is rewarded by our loving Savior. He is literally cheering us to accomplish the spiritual fruit. He's the one that's seated upon the Bema seat. He's the one that will give to us that crown. Oh, we'll give it back to him in great joy and adulation. But he's the one that is seated and, re and, and re uh, gives to us that reward. This gives us purpose in a purposeless world. Why am I controlling my passions? Why can't I explode at anybody I want to? After all, they did me wrong! They might have. They probably did. You're choosing, rather, not just to turn the other cheek, but to exercise disciplined self-control in your response to others. Paul says that through self-control, really spirit control, he could say, 
that he is not an aimless runner or a shadow boxer. I'll never forget Hearn Elementary, Frankfort, Kentucky, second grade. My mother was the school bus driver, and I got on the school bus with a ripped up, cut up back of my shirt and blood running down my back. And as a second grader, she said, Kyle Randall, what happened to you? I was shadow boxing with fifth graders on the playground. They stopped shadow boxing and beat the snot out of me. And thankfully, my mom was a bus driver, so when we got done with the bus route, she took them home last and talked to their parents and gave them watch for. The point is, I understand what he said. One that beateth the air, right? One that beateth the air. Well, you're just nothing but a shadow boxer. And then somebody, your flesh, is going to land a right jab and it's going to take you down. The final thing that we achieve is not just incorruptibility, but intimacy. Verse number 27, we often look at it in the sense that Paul writes it, and that is this. I don't want to be a castaway. I don't want to be shipwrecked. I don't want to be lost in this world and rudderless. I'd rather be in control of my life. I'd rather make sure that I'm making the right choices of the incorruptible nature that are going to be honoring to Almighty God. And when I make those choices, look at the opposite of being shipwrecked. It's being in close communion. It's being in an intimate relationship with God. Paul's greatest reward in his life was closeness to his Lord. The fullness of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The fear for Paul was to become a shipwrecked castaway. The fastest way to become that is to let your passions rule your life and exercise no control in it. How serious are you about temperance then this evening as we close? How serious are you about understanding godliness? Temperance is essential to being godly. Because here's why. It only takes a moment or two of lack of control or temperance to lose your witness and testimony for a good long time. That's why as a pastor, often I have to be very, very, very careful how I interact and how I react. Because if the pastor wrongs somebody, they'll leave the church. Well, I, I didn't mean anything by it. I just, I reacted in that moment. Yeah. Good luck. Well, if my pastor acts that way, I don't want to be around him. But I'm human. That's how important temperance is. That's not me making excuses. It's me knowing a reality. Exactly what Paul addresses here in 1 Corinthians 9. That's a reality for me. By the way, it's also a reality for us. If you go into work and you lose your testimony and you lose your cool and you are an absolute maniac at work and people look at you and go, you're a Christian? If you're living that way, you don't understand godliness and the people around you have no hope of understanding that's how important temperance really is. Father, help us, I pray this evening.